I'm Bert Cohen, and if we can get through this mess, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. There's a post going around the internet from 1985's Back to the Future. Doc Brown is cautioning Marty McFly to make sure he doesn't time travel to 2020. In addition to the 150 or so thousand likely deaths from the coronavirus, suddenly it seems our whole economic arrangement so often enforced by brutality on the part of the police. We have a president who, in the words of Republican strategist Steve Smith, has made America sicker, poorer, and more divided. A lid that has been kept on for decades seems to have suddenly blown off. The combined shocks of the COVID-19 pandemic and police killings of unarmed black men, one after another, have brought millions out into the streets, and the crowds are staying there. The pressure is turned up exponentially. Question is, what will emerge? Will there be real change after the pandemic and after the worldwide outrage over America's now-in-focus, systemic and clearly pervasive violent racism and rather astoundingly worsened economic inequality? Do we dare imagine a future in which a more just America may actually emerge? Our guest today, the Reverend Liz Thea Harris, is co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, and she asks questions which take a needed microscope to the essential questions about where we go from here. Her article is Organizing the Rich or the Poor, Which America Will Be Ours After the Pandemic? She asked, where are we now economically and politically? How do we get here? And again, where do we go from here? Reverend Liz Thea Harris, thanks so much for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, Reverend Liz Thea Harris is a theologian, ordained minister, and anti-poverty activist. She's director of the Kairos Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. She's author of Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor, and she teaches at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Well, again, thanks. Coming from my own belief that history moves in many directions at the same time, these are the worst of times, but also offer a small but bright glimmer of what may be possible. Aside from the pandemic, which is doing far greater damage to those who have the fewest resources, the economic basis where we find America in 2020 uh, is truly historic. Your own awareness of systemic and unjustifiable economic injustice was jolted into your consciousness and lifelong action when you were 18, 25 years ago, in 1995. Please tell us about your experience with a tent city in Kensington, Pennsylvania, which is near Philadelphia. What were your observations? So I was raised in a very um, dedicated to social justice family. Um, but it was when I was 18 and I went off to college in Philadelphia that I connected up with 
um, movements of the poor. And I got involved with the National Union of the Homeless as well as the Kensington Welfare Rights Union. Um, and the tent city that I visited the summer of 95 was indeed in Kensington, North Philadelphia. Um, it, Kensington at that time and, and still today is the poorest census district in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Um, it used to be the heart of the industrial um, kind of uh, the Northeast Industrial Corridor, right? Um, it's where everything from Quaker Lace to Stetson Hat to Radio Flyer Wagons were were once produced, yeah. and over the past uh, 40, 50 years, um, those industries have either moved um, across the border, um, have been automated out, um, and has left Kensington uh, with, um, you know, uh, deep poverty, um, and poverty that, that impacts uh, African Americans and Latinos, um, as well as um, white, uh, poor white people and immigrants and um and in really a, a whole cross-section of humanity. And uh, the Kensington Welfare Rights Union, uh, mm-hmm. organization of poor and homeless families, um, set up that tent city. And I got involved with that organization, became at, at, uh, eventually the assistant education director of the Kensington Welfare Rights Union. Um, and, and you know, I was really politicized, as you were saying, you know, through this um, both political demonstration um, but also what we call a project of survival, um, where, you know, about 40 homeless families, um, moms with their kids, dads with their kids, couples, individuals, um, were, were living in, in shacks um, during one of the hottest summers in, in, in a long time, um, right in the kind of rubble of mm. uh, the, the Quaker Lace factory, um, you know, right in a community that two main sources of income at the time were welfare and drugs because mm-hmm. of the, the level of the industrialization. And, mm-hmm. and they're, you know, a group of, of multiracial families, um, poor white people, poor black people, poor Latinos, um, were living together, um, sharing resources, um, and protesting on a very regular basis, a daily basis, um, through, you know, all kinds of demonstrations and actions in different parts of the city, but then also as a visible protest of, of poverty amidst plenty um, in a tent city encampment, homeless encampment, you know, right in, in Philadelphia. Um, the fact that why is it that there were more abandoned houses um, in Philadelphia at the time than homeless families, but homeless moms were being told to sleep in their cars and under bridges and on the streets. And so, um, you know, I, I, wow. I was, I was, my political life was awakened, you know, to the idea that, Poor people, um, people that are directly impacted by, you know, a whole intersection of injustices, um, can and are coming together and and building power and organizing and and winning, um, you know, winning affordable housing for the families that live there, um, winning the hearts and minds of people to mm. join in a in a long-standing fight for justice, um, and um, developing leaders who you know, weren't just involved for a couple of weeks or a couple of mm. months or a year until they got a house, but, but who have been, you know, uh, spending their lives dedicated to, you know, ending their own poverty and, and the poverty of their neighbors and friends and others in, in larger society. Interesting how poor people sharing their resources with one another reminds me of, uh, oh, some stories from about 2020 years ago. Western culture through the 19th 
through the 20th century has assumed a basis of scarcity, the belief that there's not enough to go around. That assumption seems to me has led to so many awful outcomes. What did you find out about scarcity and abundance from your tent city experience? So we live in a country that is the richest country um, on earth um, in really the richest moment in human history. Um, we can build a prefab house in 45 minutes. They can 3D print houses these days. Um, it, as I was saying before, you know, it, at the time of Tent City, there were more abandoned houses um, in right. Philadelphia than there were homeless families. Um, you know, there were 39,000 abandoned houses at the time and, and somewhere in the mm. 20s of thousands of, of homeless families. Mm. Um, and so it, it, it wasn't an issue of scarcity. Right. You know, so often we hear that these problems exist because there just isn't enough. We just can't do something else, you know, in the face of it. But but that's a that's a lie. Scarcity is a lie. Um, uh, you know, in, in fact, um you know, we throw away more food than it takes to feed not just everybody in this country, not just everybody in Philadelphia, but but the world all over. Oh um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, just one military contract um, with Lockheed Martin right now could expand Medicaid in 14 states. Right. So so it's not that we don't have the resources and it's not that that during Ten City we didn't have the, the, the ability and the capacity and the resources to actually end homelessness and poverty um, in Philadelphia or anywhere else across this land. It was that we, we lacked the political will. And mm. so so what people were doing in the Kensington Welfare Rights Union, in the National Welfare Rights Union, in the Homeless Union, you know, these organizations of poor and homeless families that, that had organized ourselves was that we were we were insisting that we were going to build a movement to change that political will to make the power structures of this nation, in the words of Dr. King, say yes when they may be desirous of saying no. Uh, yes, the, uh, the, the choices we make, you know, the priorities we make in our budgets say everything about us. And the idea of national security somehow being translated into zillion-dollar weapon systems, what you're talking about here, in my opinion, is real national security. You brought up Martin Luther King. His legacy is painted in many, many ways. Some true, much not really accurate. He was not only the leader in the last turbulent period. He was not the only leader, I should say, in the last turbulent period, the mm -hmm. 60s. But there was much beyond his area of work and expertise. According to your article in Tom Dispatch, one of them was when he went to Chicago to try to enlist women of the National Welfare Rights Organization, as it was then called, into the Poor People's Campaign which he was working on up until the moment of his assassination, he may have been surprised that the people gathered did not c come to passively listen to him. Please tell us about the National Welfare Rights Organization, the predecessor to the National Welfare Rights Union, and what the NWRO may have started to teach Dr. King and, and why that lesson uh, continues today. So I think this is like an awesome story, right? I mean, here you have um, Dr. King, who who plays such an important role as a leader who you know raises these issues of racism and poverty and militarism, and and sees that you can only confront one of them if 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 you confront them all, right? Um, but still, 
you know, he has just like any social justice leader of our time or of history has yeah. has things to learn from others. And yes. so he, you know, indeed, as as you were saying, he, he goes to a meeting with the, the leadership of the National Welfare Rights Organization. Um, the National Welfare Rights Organization is founded in, in the mid 60s. Um, its leadership um, at, its, at its height is in the tens of thousands. Um, there are hundreds of welfare rights um, uh, kind of organizations that are local in states and in cities, you know, um, at its height. Um, and uh, it's led by um, and organized by welfare recipients themselves, mm. you know, mm. um, mainly um, poor women, um, predominantly poor women of color, um, African-American women, Latino women who who, uh, you know, come up with this idea that we shouldn't fight just to barely survive, but to thrive. Um, and, uh, and there's a powerful history and legacy of the welfare rights organization and, 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 yes. and one that, that you can see a little bit in this story of, of Dr. King sitting and, um, you know, coming prepared to talk about the poor people's campaign and why they should join and, and being sat down and, 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 and kind of schooled by, okay, but what's your stance on these different welfare policies? And, mm. and you, know, Reverend, uh, uh, you know, Reverend King doesn't have much of a response because, you know, these, these women are, are, are deeply informed, have been fighting around, you know, particular legislation for, for, for years at this point of this meeting. Um, and, and so Johnny Tillman, you know, one of the, mm -hmm. the main leaders of, of, the, of the work, you know, says, you know, Dr. King, if you don't know, just say so, so we can get on with this meeting. And so Dr. King responds, I don't know. That's why we're here to learn. And, and then what happens in this meeting is, is, is welfare moms, you know, have a chance to, to, you know, not just tell their sad stories, not just, you know, become, you know, members of a, a larger, you know, movement. But get to really assert their leadership um, and 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 help to really mold the policy asks and demands of what becomes the poor people's campaign, um, and including around what they call a guaranteed adequate income. Yes. Um, sometimes people talk about that as a guaranteed annual income. Sometimes people, you know, these days are calling about it a universal basic income. Um, what I think is really important about the conversation that happens between Dr. King and the welfare rights um, leaders is that uh, is that they're insisting that um, that we need you know adequate income that 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 women working in the home, domestic workers, um, you know, need you know income, and it needs to be um, so that you can you know have a have a family that's strong and that it's one of many social programs that should exist. So there should be strong housing programs. Yes. There should be strong welfare programs. There should be this guaranteed income. There should be living wages. There should be the right to job, you know, all of this kind of, you know, as a whole cohesive program. And, and so then the welfare rights leaders really help to shape what the program and demands of the poor people's campaign become based on their experience and their organizing and their deep knowledge of policy. Deep knowledge, indeed. And I would add to that Medicare for all. You know, it sounds uh, familiar. Actually, uh, Franklin Roosevelt talked about these as rights as well. Moving fast forward to the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan was president, people receiving welfare were vilified. There was the image 
of a welfare queen, as we all know. Since then, the country has pretty much accepted the notion of deserving and undeserving. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, so we've really been living through, at this point, uh, you know, basically a 40- or 50-year campaign to delegitimize and discredit the poor when already, you know, um, poor people were pretty marginalized in our society. Um, but but it, it really is um, almost universal understanding these days that people are poor because they are lazy or crazy or they're not working hard enough or they're having too many kids. And, and so all of these things that, that, that Reagan and, and others really put out you know, have become almost the common sense of, of our society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so then what happens is that, like, you know, w- instead of talking about strong welfare programs, despite the fact that welfare is in the Constitution, um, you know, we, we have now temporary aid for needy families. You know, it's not a federal entitlement anymore. Um, you know, all of the, like the, when the federal, when the welfare reform law was passed in 1996 under President Clinton, right? It's, it's, uh, it's the personal responsibility and work reconciliation act, right? And so it's, it's a very moral quote unquote document. Mm-hmm. It's all about, you know, that it, if your family isn't doing okay, it's on you. It has nothing to do right. with society failing you. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with structural inequalities mm-hmm. that exist. Um, and so, so what we have indeed is this idea that like there are some people who are deserving mm-hmm. and then others that are undeserving. Um, so sometimes, for instance, you'll hear this kind of in the media played out as like, well, let's, let's save these poor kids from their bad families and not that like what that there's with the kind of uh, resources at hand um, and with the you know, priorities of, of society in a shifted that, that, you know, that we actually could eliminate all poverty. Um, and, and instead who's really getting welfare aren't poor mm-hmm. moms, aren't poor dads, aren't, you know, individuals who either can't work or can't find jobs that pay enough to, to, to make people's ends meet. Um, where, when, when, when just trillions and, and billions oh. are being funneled to the wealthiest, right, um, uh, in a form of corporate welfare. Um, and so, you know, what's been really important in terms of the organizing, especially uh, learning this from leaders from the welfare rights movement, has been that there is in between deserving and undeserving, that all people, um, all life is sacred, and that all people have the right um, to, to, to thrive. And there is enough to go around, I would suggest. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, talking about her uh, article, Organizing the Rich or the Poor? Which America Will Be Ours After the Pandemic? And certainly the dollars that are spent in you know, uh, corporate welfare, welfare to the military contractors, Somehow that's okay. That's deserving. That just blows me away, I have to say. Now, and I note that in recent days, there's a lot of discussion about removal of a statue of Lincoln, for example, many statues. This one, Lincoln is standing tall with a man newly free from slavery who's bent down. The people who were enslaved initiated a lot of the actions leading to abolition. 
the encampment at Kensington was referred to as a new underground railroad. You write in your essay, just as enslaved people once had to break the law to bust out of the system of slavery, poor and homeless people needed a growing civil disobedience movement to survive. And so that statue of, of the many statues that are out there, you know, has one in a superior position, one in a lesser position. So I wonder if you could say more about that uh, necessity of, you know, poor people, as you're describing, taking it on themselves and sometimes having to break the law to bust out of that system. Uh, and civil disobedience movement uh, is sometimes essential. Indeed. I mean, so I have a favorite quote from Frederick Douglass. Um, he, he says, um, you know, those who would be free must strike the first blow. Um, uh-huh. Those in pain know when their pain is relieved. And, and uh-huh. you know, uh, I think indeed this kind of historical example of the Underground Railroad and enslaved people, um, you know, not wait, waiting to be freed right. by someone else, but but uh, but you know escaping to freedom and by participating in that underground railroad, not just freeing the hundreds of slaves that that were freed that way, but also raising the issue of how in this supposed land of liberty do you have you know uh, so many people living in bondage and and. Yes. Um, uh, and slavery and U.S. chattel slavery, right? And so, and, and and indeed, I think often when we look at history, um, we 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 kind of look over the the fact that that if it weren't for the leadership of those that are most impacted by the injustices that we're trying to solve, that that not as much happens in the way of of freedom and liberation and liberty. Um, and so if, if it hadn't been for slaves and, and former slaves, you know, I, I think we might still be waiting for U.S. chattel slavery. Um, if it weren't for women, you know, taking up the, the suffrage movement, um, women's suffrage movement, you know, you know, would, would men alone have been able to, 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 you know, fight that fight. You know, the, the leadership of, of African-Americans in the Black freedom struggles of Latinos and the, uh, you know, liberation movements um, of LGBTQ folks, um, of workers, you know, in the labor struggles, um, that, 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 that those in pain um, know when their pain is relieved and those who would be free must strike the first blow. And so, you know, what we're seeing, I think, across this country, you know, I'm the co-chair, as you said, of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Um, what we're, see- we're seeing also in, in many of the, the protests and uprisings that are happening in cities and towns across the country is those who are, you know, directly impacted yes. by, by violence, by racism, by poverty. Um, by injustice are are taking um, action together and um, and 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 often what has to happen in a society that has rules and laws that are really about protecting those with wealth and power and mm-hmm. and and um, and and kind of criminalizing uh, the poor you know so if we go back to the story of Kensington um, where I was um, kind of politicized, Seventy uh, percent of the population in Kensington, basically at the time that that Ten City was going, had to do something illegal just to survive. Um, but the, the complete criminalization of of people's life, right? I mean, whether that was having borrowed tags for their car, or whether that was having to supplement welfare checks, or whether that was 
you know, having to um, engage in, in, in the selling um, of drugs, um, you know, just all kinds of things. But, but what kind of society, you know, makes it illegal to basically survive, mm. but then lets those who are, who are, you know, violating people's um, uh, lives, you know, get off free. And so, you know, I think that, that times have, have historically and still today call for people to need to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience. And um, yeah. to disrupt these systems that are are disrupting people's lives. Yeah, sometimes you gotta, you know, <laughs> strike out loud. If you don't strike out loud, then you know people don't hear it. If you're not a thorn in the side, people, you know, the people with the power aren't gonna aren't gonna do anything. Now, one of the first results of the COVID nineteen pandemic was moratoriums on eviction. The evictions have yet to begin in earnest, but people are getting tired of COVID-19. They want to get, quote, back to normal. You say the government has, quote, blundered through a string of relief packages that have injected trillions of dollars into Wall Street while excluding millions of people from even the most basic stopgap protections, end of quote. What does this mean to the lives of poor people, and for that matter, to the richest among us? We've seen in the way that the United States has has handled the, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, exactly the society that we're living in. Um, so the, the richest billionaires in our, uh, in our country have seen upwards of, of, you know, 500 billion more dollars that they've basically made profiting off of pandemic. Right. Yes. And, and yet 40% of families that were making $40,000 or less, mm. um, have lost a job in this crisis. Homelessness is is increasing by forty five percent. The the um, I mean it's 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 actually pretty staggering, right? I mean the the, the eviction notices are are just starting to get sent out, mm-hmm. or or at least um, and and uh, you know we we are about to see and are starting to see now already just the the breadth and depth of the kind of economic crisis um, and, and, and it's disproportionate impact oh, yeah. on, on poor and low income people. Right. And oh. so, I mean, you know, part of our, part of states opening back up for business is about, you know, basically cutting people off of the unemployment role. Mm. It's, it's not that we're using um, society's, you know, great wealth um, to, to help people out in a hard time. It's not that we're, you know, guaranteeing wages like they did in Germany. Um, instead, we have state governments, you know, opening up to basically get the unemployment numbers down, not because people aren't unemployed, but because now if you choose to not go back to a job that, that you potentially could because your family is immunocompromised, because you're 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 scared about the conditions, because you you've actually lost your car because you couldn't pay, keep up with the car payment mm-hmm. um, and you can't get there, and now it's on you. Now it's your fault. Um, oh. hmm. And uh, and 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 this is happening on a massive level across this country. And and I think again, if we if we see this rise of a protest movement that's happening across the country, we we know that that it it starts with the spark of police violence and, and continued year after year police killings of African-American um, lives, um, Native lives, um, 
but it's also connected to, you know, how our institutions in this country have failed people and failed millions and millions of people and how precarious people are living and, and very, you know, you can see in, in, in even the case of George Floyd, he had COVID, you know, he was a restaurant worker who had been let go because of, of the pandemic. He like was clearly trying to make ends meet. Um, and so you, you see in there, you know, a whole host of intersectional issues uh, hmm. um, that, that, that then get us to a place where there are just millions of folks that are hurting and having to go into motion, having to protest and organize because um, they've been abandoned, but in the midst of abundance, not, not because our society doesn't have the wherewithal. Right. It's just that who gets that is the billionaires. Um, it's, it's, you know, the, the same Congress that has decided to not expand health care at all in a pandemic, in the largest public health crisis in a century. It's the same Congress that has all of their health care needs met, you know. <laughs> um, and so, you know, these kinds of um, contradictions, I think, you know, we're seeing and, and, and it's showing what society we live in, but it also needs to show us what society could could be and what what society we want to live in and um and again i i I don't think people are are people are not content with how things are going um and so then that's we're trying to movement that political will so we can make it so well certainly uh there's no question that uh people in the lower end of the income scale are much more at risk they don't have the options they have to go to work and take a, a huge risk with their lives because of so many, you know, systemic situations that just guarantee that people have to do that. And, and you know, it's systemic racism. There's no question about that. You know, you talked about uh, evictions. They're, they're just barely starting. And in the 1930s, when families were evicted, there was also somewhat of a depression back then. Local people would sometimes gather together to move their furniture back in. They would disrupt bank foreclosures. This was largely in the Midwest among farmers. And people who were enslaved also took action, sometimes less than legal, to lead the way forward. Along maybe a similar line, you ask, with a possible depression ahead and more social unrest on the rise, isn't it time to stop vindicating the wealthiest people in the country and look instead to leadership from those who were living in a depression before COVID-19 even hit and already organizing and protesting? Please say more of what you mean here. So before the pandemic hit, there were 140 million people who were poor and low income, according to U.S. Census wow. you know, statistics, right? That's 43% of the population. Any society that has nearly half its population living in poverty and precarity um, is not a well society. I mean, no. that, that those aren't the conditions for a strong democracy. That that isn't um, the kind of uh, world we want people and our children to live in. And 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 yet, what happens year after year is what you know what us into that problem of 140 million people. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't be, wasn't that one day everybody woke up and said, "Now I'm poor." Yeah. It, it, it's been. It's been structured into the way that society is working. And so, you know, I was on a call with some low-wage workers last week, and, and they said it's not that the system isn't working. It's working the way it's set up to be. Yeah. 
and and that's the benefit the the rich right and so so i think what i'm questioning in this article when i say you know why why do we keep on looking to those that are causing the problems that we're seeing in our society for solutions it's it's because um you know if if healthcare can stay at for for profit you know of course the healthcare corporations are going to prioritize profit over people. I mean, that's that's what it means to have a for-profit healthcare system, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It means to to minimize life and li- minimize, you know, saving people's lives to maximize profit. And so, so that's who wants that in a healthcare system, right? <laughs> well, only the rich. I mean, because they're going to have enough to pay and they're the ones that are making money off of other people, right? You know, to have all these abandoned houses when there's all this homelessness, including in this moment when we're being told to shelter in place, but all these people, you know, 12 million people have no place to shelter, right? They're homeless. Um, Who benefits from from abandoned luxury housing units? Like, uh, who, who does that is the real estate companies and yeah. and the the mortgage brokers and the um and and some of the 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 you know the the very institutions that the, that have been bailed out in this pandemic when when the people in the homeless haven't been and so so again why would we look to to mortgage brokers uh, for solutions to housing issues um, we we know what their answers are going to be it's it's to line their pockets. Um, that's how it's set up. And so, so instead, what, what needs to happen is, is to look to those who, who are organizing for their very existence and lives. Um, and, and the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, of which I'm the co-chair, mm-hmm. we've put together a budget. Um, mm-hmm. We basically found the money. <laughs> we, we, we say that if we cut the military budget in half, if we, if we tax those who can really afford it and not tax them so much that they don't still have, you know, you know, all the, the, right. the, the luxuries of life. Um, and if we actually invest in, in social programs, invest in living wage jobs, invest in early childhood education, invest in free college education for everyone, you know, and, and, and see that as an investment, it actually improves the economy. Yes. Um, and, it actually solves people's problems um, in in life, and and uh, and so it would be a stronger society that we'd be living in if if what you do is you lift from the bottom. You're the saying: if you lift from the bottom, everybody rises. Well, um, well, well, let's do that. You know, um, and we can do that, and we have a, yes, we, uh, we have a budget to show how to do it. Um, and and poor people have been fighting and organizing to come up with many of those solutions, whether it's water affordability programs, whether it's decent housing programs, whether it's single payer universal health care programs, whether it's adequate income programs, um, and and you know and, and and so many more things. And again, you know, if you, if you redirect um, funds from police, um, if you redirect funds from the fact that we spend fifty three cents of every discretionary dollar on the military. Mm. To education and housing and healthcare and living wage jobs, well, then our whole society will actually flourish, um, and and people will, you know, have more money to to invest in local businesses. Sure, people will have, you know, a, a, you know, the public health crisis that was made so much worse by the fact that people, you know, had to kind of keep working even yeah. when um, 
when they were sick, um, that wouldn't, that doesn't happen. And, and so as we both think about how we're going to get out of this pandemic and how we also um, prepare our society to be strong for the present and future, you know, really actually ending poverty um, is, is, is crucial. Yes, it is. And there's no reason it can't be done. And it's so good for the economy. It builds real national security. Before I forget, if people are interested in seeing uh, the budget that you were talking about, I assume there's a website you can direct them to. That's right. So you can go to poorpeoplescampaign.org, um, and the, you'll find the moral budget there. Um, you can also text um, the word moral, M-O-R-A-L, hmm. to the number 90975, um, and you can then you sign up to get updates from the Poor People's Campaign. Um, this Saturday, we're planning um, a massive Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington. That's a digital justice gathering. It's at 10 a.m. Eastern time on Saturday. And you can go to either the Poor People's Campaign.org or June2020.org um, to, to tune in to that live broadcast on Saturday um, and to kind of take action because what we'll be doing with that budget is um, also sharing you know, more of the, a summary of a legislative agenda that we're, that we're putting out based on that budget and based on the organizing work that we've been doing. And so hopefully folks can join us on June 20th, Saturday at 10 a.m. Well, this is an amazing moment in history. I can't help but think, I mean, just the, I mean, George Floyd just has shaken the earth. You know, it's just, it, people are really, really waking up here and, uh, who knows what's going to happen, but this is kind of a turning point. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive, and we actually picked the name of the show before Trump got elected. Who knew? Uh, our guest is uh, the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, who's chair of the Poor People's Campaign. We're talking about what's after uh, the pandemic, which America will be ours after the pandemic. Um, and with with regard to the uh, pandemic crisis, which happened, you know, started before the murder of George Floyd, the pandemic. How has the government dealt with that? How has let's look into a little bit on how the CARES Act has worked. How has it affected economic inequity, or for that matter, the power of police? So this is really important, right? Um, so, you know, if we look at state and city budgets um, right now, which are in crisis, um, in crisis for lots of reasons, but including this pandemic and, and having to, you know, have people staying in place and having to invest a lot of money into, into coronavirus, you know, um, testing and treatment and, and infrastructure. Um, but when you look at city and state budgets, 30 to 60% of them are going to the police. Um, you know, I live in New York city, uh, uh, the, the city budget that was proposed kind of into this pandemic, you know, to, to make up for some of the money that's been spent and lost, um, uh, cuts education by like half. Um, even though all of our school, our kids um, that are in public schools, like my own, are are having to do online learning, the teachers are having to figure out new platforms to use. You know, they're, 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 you know, this is a moment when we need lots of resources for education, right? More and more resources for education, and and everyone would agree to this, right? Um, but instead, it's cutting. It, the, the proposal is to cut um, the city budget. Um, for education in half, but to increase the police budget. Oh, great. Um, so, so this is, you know, and, and that's happening, you know, all over. Um, you know, what we saw in the first, you know, couple of weeks of the pandemic was 
um, and 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 unfortunately, far 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 too far into the pandemic, was that doctors and nurses, you know, weren't getting the PPE that they need. Right. But yet, you know, we, you have a round of protests, and the police are there in full protection, full PPE, you know, quelling the protesters. Right? Um, the National Guard, you know, isn't isn't uh, sent out to help you know, with, with coronavirus testing and treatment, but, but is deployed, you know, to, to stop people from actually raising issues about the, the, the hundreds of years of systemic racism and the kind of deep um, inequality and precarity that people are living in. And so, you know, I think, and, and if we look at the, the, the stimulus packages that have happened so far, um, they just have, uh, they just kind of continued to, to um, to to show um, this kind of polarity, right? Where eighty to eighty five percent of the, the money um, that's basically been um, tax and 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 the different stimulus packages um, uh, really go to the wealthy and corporations, um, and tens of millions of poor and impacted people are left out in many ways, right? I mean, so so there still isn't. Um, provisions uh, that corporations can't get out of for paid sick leave um, for for the majority of workers, um, despite the fact that we're living in a public health epidemic. Um, there still, um, uh, you know, have not been protections for immigrants um, mm. and for, um, uh, you know, and just like what's, what's happening there. There still um, has been no expansion of health care. And with 44 million people having to file for unemployment and so many people's health care being connected to their jobs because oh, we don't man. have a single-payer health care system, yeah. it means that now we have upwards of 80 million people in this nation in a public health crisis that do not have health care, right? Um, uh, so, so, but there's been no – and in fact, we've heard from some people, some, some even po- politicians say, well, this is not the time. To, to change healthcare, not during a public health pandemic. And yeah. it's just, you know, our, our response to that is, well, if this isn't the time, then, then when is the time? You know, it, it, it was the time to end slavery during slavery. It was the time to, you know, end the lack of worker protection during the labor movement. You know, it, it, it better be the time to, to change healthcare during a public health crisis oh like that that is the time right and of so course. but but again if we if we look at at the at the cares act um and at all of the stimulus packages that have been passed um you know what we see is basically uh the vast majority of the resources going to to make the richest richer and to to exclude the corporations from any sense of accountability and hmm. you know the the homeless immigrants um the uninsured um, those without paid sleep, being left to fend for themselves. Left, well, people with darker skin, of course. Well, you know, there's there's President Trump, but there's also you know a lot of Democrats who have a majority in in uh, the House of Representatives. What have the Democrats done so far? What about this Heroes Act? Are they are they starting to get it, or are they, you know, sort of like a Republican light in this case? So I think this is a really important point. I mean, again, uh, what's happened with the Heroes Act is that it's it's still delayed, but even in its um, that passed through um, the House, um, there were still 
um, there were still too many provisions that are about um, helping the wealthy and, and still too many people being left out. Um, so, so for instance, um, you know, lobbyists are included in, in being able to still get their, their cut um, in the, in the, in the heroes act. Um, you know, the mortgage brokers are still, you know, some of the same ones that, that in the, the 2007, 2008 recession, you know, were really responsible for mm-hmm. that housing bubble crash. Mm-hmm. Um, they still are being protected, um, mm. in this, uh, there's still, you know, this point about not letting, you know, taking folks off the hook, um, and, and states being able to, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, there's still just so many things that are being left out. Um, and, and so I think, you know, it's part of the reason that we in the poor people's campaign have had said that we, you know, we, we need, we're nonpartisan, but very political is that we have to be challenging all of our elected officials to actually, you know, pass stimulus that, that centers, um, those who, you know, are, are, are homeless and undocumented and without health care and without, um, worker protections and, um, and without adequate income. And, um, and I think we, we still are seeing, um, uh, that, that even what's being proposed so far is, is still lacking. I do find it interesting as a former legislator myself, the, you know, the lobbyists have the ear of the, uh, members of Congress and, Poor people don't have lobbyists so much, you know. So how can you get the ear? You got to make some noise. I mean, there's that famous quote from uh, uh, FDR, who's saying to, to uh, A. Philip Randolph about segregation. I'm with you. I want to end uh, this uh, racist uh, stuff. Go out there and make me do it. We have to do that. That is exactly what people have to do. Make noise. The poor people don't have lobbyists. They got to make noise on the streets, and they are. My goodness. And I think it's a, it's a fabulous thing. You know, as I said earlier, history moves in many directions at the same time. For example, you mentioned the gun-toting Trump supporters protesting at state capitals. At the same time, what's happening in terms of action by and among the dispossessed at the base of society among, against great odds? Is this a moment when diverse Americans are actually finding common cause? So I think if we if we look at the protests um, that we're getting to see, sometimes um, not fully um, on the mainstream media, well, but yeah. but if you follow kind of social media, um, if you if you look at the at the protests, you can see this this beautiful diversity of people, um, who are, who are coming out and, 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 and that's of just who's, who's feels safe enough to, you know, go and put, um, in a socially distanced way, but, you know, on the streets. Um, I, I, and there's, there's other, other types of actions and, and campaigns and, and protesting that is, is happening as well. Um, you know, I, I, I talk a little bit in the article about, um, the rent strikes that, that have been taking place for a while now. Um, uh, and how, you know, many, many, um, you know, millions of people in, in, you know, in lots of places across the country, you know, can't, can't afford to pay their rent, um, and who are joining, you know, organized rent strikes and not paying their rent. Um, you know, there's, there's low wage workers and, 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 um, and, you know, at Amazon, at Walmart, but also unionized ones at, you know, at meat packing places and poultry um, packing places at, at um, fast food restaurants with the part of the fight for 15 who have been doing walkouts 
um, uh, and 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 winning, you know, in their local areas, you know, greater protections for their for their works. Um, uh, there's there's powerful organizing amongst homeless people. Um, you know, homeless folks are are winning. You know. Uh, you know, kind of hotel rooms or mm-hmm. or other kind of social programs um, to to address uh, the problem of, of homelessness. And again, it's not happening because you know the politicians are just waiting there and handing stuff out. Yeah. Um, as we just discussed, you know, in the CARES Act, you know, we we basically left the homeless completely out. But but there still is powerful organizing against great odds, as you said, um, that that is happening. And, you know, this past weekend, it crossed in four different towns and cities across Pennsylvania. There was folks that are organizing around health care um, and also about debt relief, both health care debt and, and other debt relief that did these Jubilee caravans. Um, members of the Pennsylvania Poor People's Campaign and Put People First Pennsylvania, who, um, you know, made connections between all of these different injustices and said that, you know, we declare, we declare Jubilee, like we declare, you know, freedom um, and, and uh, powerful kind of car caravans and marches and all of these kinds of things. And, and and, and I just think it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to see how, how so many people who are being impacted by the injustices of today are, are standing together and, and, and out there organizing together. I, I still have to believe, maybe I'm just a naive optimist, but that people, more people have good moral values than don't. I, I, I still have to believe that. And, you know, we have a presidential election, at least in theory, coming up. But, you know, people often look to a new president to make real change. But even if Bernie Sanders were president, people would still have to act on the streets. Somebody, I wish I knew the source of this quote, politics and protest, both necessary, neither sufficient. Real change always comes from the bottom up. Politicians only act when it's made safe for them by a perceptible change in public attitude. I get the sense that this is happening now, that people, I don't know if people are starting to think that, you know, maybe we do need to start having fairer taxes. I mean, that in your article, you talk about uh, uh, the state of Washington, for example, the two wealthiest people uh, mm-hmm. on earth live in the state of Washington. We think of that as sort of a liberal mecca. At least I thought it was. Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos live there. They, the states make budget cuts, and yet they don't tax their richest residents. Why would so many states use what you call the playbook of austerity? Austerity, especially now, when so many of the workers who keep the country going will have to suffer even more. What is it going to take to start you know, having fairer taxes on them. I mean, Eisenhower wanted to tax uh, excess income. The money they have, I mean, how many billions can somebody have? I mean, Bezos got, well, like $150 billion. You could tax him fairly heavily and he'd be okay. So what's it going to take, do you think? I mean, instead of austerity, to this dollar money is there. There's no scarcity. Your reaction to that, please. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, the, the answer is to organize, to organize, to organize and build power uh, amongst yes. the people to make um, make it uh, make our politicians have to do this. Yes, right. Um, yes. Yeah. I think Washington State's a, a, a great example. New York City, New York State is, you know, where I'm from is, is another example. Right. I mean, you have you have the wealth of Wall Street. Um, and yet you again, as I was saying before, um, the state budget 
is being proposed to, you know, to cut people off of healthcare in this moment, to cut education in this moment, um, and never to think that what we could do is, is tax. And so, um, and again, not tax to dispossess the wealthy, but to tax to, to be able to, you know, actually live in this kind of society that everybody wants to live in. And, um, and so, but, 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 you know, right now, what we have is a, a scarcity of political will, and our politicians get away with right. this. Um, and so I think what, what we're trying to do, for instance, you know, with this Mass for People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington, when we put out this kind of legislative agenda, um, when we, we are doing voter mobilization and voter protection in this upcoming election, and as we basically try to weave together a, a powerful movement um, that, that, that has people power at its base, um, is is you know I think is is my answer to how do we how do we actually you know beat back austerity and 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 build a society that that people want to live in I mean you know what what the polling tells us right now is that um, people want single payer universal health care yes. what the polling tells us is that people want fundamental economic and social changes um, what 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 polling tells us is that people are are fed up with you know, all of these resources going to policing um, when 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 police violence and racist police violence is, is in a rise. Um, you know, what 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 polling tells us and, and this is just polling, you know, let alone, um, you know, like what we're is, is that people really think that we need more resources for education. And, and what we know also is that every dollar invested in education oh, yeah. saves our society seven dollars in the future. Mm. Um, and so so it's actually a really good investment. It's a better investment, you know, than really investing in anything else, especially not in military <laughs> or, or policing. Um, well, you know, well, getting it's, the it's efficient and it's better for people's lives. Get, getting to logical good things is oftentimes exceedingly difficult, even though, you know, polling doesn't exactly lead. It kind of follows, uh, it measures what's what's changed already. And I think change is starting to happen. It really is. And, you know, we rarely learn from history, in my opinion. You write optimistically, today there's freedom, a freedom railroad rumbling underground all around us. How... What does that mean, and how confident are you that we won't, quote, may emerge from this crisis a just and more equitable nation? What dynamics are there uh, at play toward that revival in American society? And what do you mean by railroad rumbling underground? I feel like I have the benefit of, you know, getting to connect up with the Poor People's Campaign organized in 45 states across the country. And so I... You know, this on Saturday I was on one live stream with folks in California, and the next one with folks in Wisconsin that are organizing around homelessness, and you know, then the next one with folks that are doing voter protection and voter suppression work in different southern states. And you know, and and what I got to hear, you know, in all of these live streams, all of these town halls, all of these, you know, demonstrations and activities, is just a powerful movement of people that is growing. And again, I think if we look at then you know, these protests of thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, you know, if we if we add up all the numbers, you know, that are taking place in, in places all across the country, in, in big cities, but also in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and in Elmira, New York, if we see this in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and in Elmira, New York, and all over, 
protest movement that that is there, uh, organizing movement um, that is there, and and people coming together in these kind of broad and bold ways. And and so, I'm not someone who's just like optimistic. Right, um, right. Uh, you know that 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 you know uh, this is a this is a really dark and dangerous moment in our in our country's history um mm. uh you know and i think we need a lot of mourning we need a lot of you know uh you know really reckoning yes. with with the the level of death and destruct and violence and killing that is that is taking place um and isn't letting up right i mean you worse. know the numbers of the, of the pandemic are just are, are increasing and yes. and despite the fact that people are on the streets um fighting against and fighting back against racist police killings you know we we have more of them yeah, happening every going. day I know, and it's so amazing. and so so this is a moment that that you know is really dark and dangerous um but but there is still you know as dr king says that when the when the sky is darkest is only when you can see the stars uh, he said it uh-huh. more beautifully than that, but uh-huh. yeah. um, and I I think there are these stars um, in the protests, in the creative actions of of welfare recipients, in the creative organizing of homeless people, in the uninsured and the low wage workers that are walking out. Um, I, I think we see some of those stars, and and the only hope for I think our society is to follow that leadership and to build power and to organize and to come together and to, you know, demand that justice is served. And, and again, that's what has happened in history before, including in other dark and dangerous times. Um, and so, um, I can only think, um, that, that it's possible to do it now because it, it, it has been done before and it, it can be. The website, if people want to go to the Poor People's Campaign? Poorpeople'scampaign.org and June2020.org. All right. Well, thank you so much. There's a little bit of light coming out of the darkness, I think. Thanks so much, Reverend Theo Harris. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. 